Oh, you guys can grab a seat. Hey, you excited to be here tonight? Oh man, what a joy to gather together and celebrate our risen King. You know what's just incredible to me? That all around the world, around two and a half billion people gathered to celebrate the risen Jesus. Now, just imagine being there 2,000 years ago. You're in this city. And you, you weren't a disciple, but you heard about what happened. You heard about this Jesus from Nazareth that was crucified. And when he died, the sky went dark and the earth began to shake. Rocks were breaking and shattering. It's something you've been experiencing. You've been feeling the weight of it for, since Friday night. And then Sunday morning rolls around and there's murmurs, there's rumors that this Christ, this Messiah, that he's not in the grave. And people are wondering where he is. They're wondering what happened. And it's interesting, whenever you talk about the resurrection, there's always these two camps that people fall in. There's the camp of skepticism and the camp of celebration. And, and, and we see it even in the early, uh, early church, the, the, the very beginning, John 20, verse 1. Look at this. It says, early on in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't want, and we don't know where they have put him. What, what's her first response? Is it to say he's risen, right? And you know he's risen indeed. You know that, that's not what happens. She's skeptic. She, she's like, no, no, the tomb is empty, and they have taken the body. The very first disciples, even the very first human being to see this empty tomb, what is his, her posture? It's one of skepticism. And it's funny because, like, modern-day skeptics, we find ourselves saying, you know, hey, you know, like, I know this is going for 2,000 years, you know, and, but, but you have it all wrong. They just stole the body. Like, like we came up with some kind of creative solution 2,000 years later. Like nobody thought of this, right? You know, but I learned this in community college. It's amazing. They just stole the body, right? Even Mary, like even the first disciples that were there, there was skepticism. And God actually sends an angel to have a conversation with Mary. And he, he's asking her, well, why are you crying? And she's like, because the, bo he's not, the body is gone. What have you done with my look? And so Jesus shows up. And he's like, why are you crying? And she thinks he's the gardener. And she looks at him and she's like, did you steal the body? You know, like there's this skepticism right off the bat. And, and we don't just see it with Mary. We actually see it with Thomas as well. Uh, he has the, you know, kind of the nickname Doubting Thomas, right? Can you imagine having that? You, you go to heaven, you're going to meet a guy, he's going to walk up, he's like, hey man, I'm Tom, nice to meet you, welcome. And you're like, are you that one, are you Doubting Thomas? He's like, one line, really? Thanks, John, for writing that down, like one line. This is what he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side where the spear pierced his side, allowing the blood and water to drain. I will never believe. And, and here's what I just want to say off the bat. Like if you're here gathering with us tonight and, and you have a posture of, of skepticism, you're, you're hesitant about the resurrection. Can I just say you're in good company? Like you're, you're actually not alone. Jesus is not afraid of your questions. And, and I believe that this is why he's placed this here in the scriptures. 
Because he wants us to see what, what Mary needed, what Thomas needed. They needed to encounter Jesus. And that's what Jesus wants for you, wants you to encounter him. It's as if Jesus, he knew every skeptic reading these accounts would need the same evidence, would need this account. And I love how he responds to Thomas. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. That's the joy that we have the blessing of the Lord that we have, that we can have a confidence in him. But some of the disciples, they actually celebrate. I love this account as it continues on. It says, so Peter and the other disciple, who's the other disciple? Well, the other disciple is John. And, and whenever John is writing uh, in his gospel, he always calls himself uh, the other disciple or uh, the, the one whom Jesus loved, you know, very humble, you know. And, and, and he makes this observation. And the other disciple, they started for the tomb. Verse 4, both were running, but the other disciple, who's that, John, the one writing it, outran Peter and reached the tomb first, right? I just love, this is how you know the Bible was written by a bunch of teenage knuckleheads, right? You know, like, hey, don't forget what happened. You know, the Holy Spirit is like inspiring John in this moment, and then John's still writing. He's like, wait, what are you doing? Like, really, John? You got to write that you won the race, you know? Okay, you know what? Fine. You're going to Patmos, you're being exiled, and you get to, you get the vision of heaven, and you get to write the book of Revelation. That's your punishment. Like, you know, you go off and, and you write that. This historical historical account and John's like don't forget I smoked you bro like that's what happened like thank you I, lo- I just love the Bible right he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in then Simon Peter came along behind him because he was slower and older and he got second place in the race and he went straight into the tomb he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first. (laughs) I'm concerned about you. He's still in process. Can we say the process of sanctification? Who reached the tomb first also went inside. And what does it say? It says he saw and believed. Immediately in his heart, he knew, man, Jesus has been risen. But, but, but don't miss this verse. This is a massive verse, and it's important for us to understand. And in many of your scriptures, it's actually in parentheses. It's verse 9. It says, they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. What Paul is admitting, he, he says, we knew the details of the resurrection. We knew the facts of the resurrection. We knew the what, but we didn't understand the why. We didn't understand why this was so important. And, and look at me. Look, you may be, this may be your first Easter in a church. This may be, be your 50th Easter in a church or somewhere in between. But, but we need to celebrate the why. We need to wrap our minds and our hearts around the why. Why is the resurrection the most significant moment in human history? And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. Here's the first reason. The resurrection, it brings hope in the face of death. We're going to start with the end and work our way backwards. What do we need? We need hope in the face of death. So first, we need hope in our grief and loss of ones that we dearly love. Man, there's so many of you in this room, many stories that I know. You guys have lost dearly loved ones. Some of you guys have lost children. 
Some of you have lost parents or siblings, friends, neighbors, people that are part of your family. And there's a grief, and we need hope in the midst of it. Part of, part of being a parent is teaching your kids about grief and loss. And so, you know, for us in our family, one of the ways that that's taken place is through these, these creatures that we've had in our life. Uh, my son had this uh, leopard gecko named Leo, and Leo was a part of our family. And Leo would sit on the couch and watch movies with Dax. And I'm like, bro, what are you, like, what are you doing? Like, this is, like, leopard geckos, they're weird, right? You, if you ever have one, you're like, how do they survive in the wild? They, like, go blind at age two, you know? It's just like, but, but it, Dax would sit there and watch. And I'm like, hey, Dax, you got it. Like, you can't just have Leo on the couch because Waffles, our cat, is going to find him. And he's going to come eat Leo. And Dax is like, I took care of it. And I'm like, what does that mean? I go in his room and this is... <laughs> That is not a joke. That's Waffles. I love Waffles' face. Like, what happened? Like, what? what's going on right now? Where's, like, where's food, right? <clears throat> but eventually what happens, right? Waffles gets Leo. And, and my poor son, he, he's devastated by it. And I sit him down and I'm like, Tex, it's okay to be sad. I'm sad for you. And, and we miss Leo. But I don't have any hope to offer him, do I? I can only look back on past memories. Like, as far as I've read in Scripture, let, Leopard geckos, they're not, you know, part of the resurrection when Jesus comes again. That's not going to happen. Like, leopard geckos are not in heaven. And and one day, Waffles, who our family dearly loves, Waffles is going to die. And and will Waffles be in heaven? No, she's not a dog, right? Dogs go to heaven, cats don't. Where do cats go? (laughs) Cats, those furry, four-legged little demon seeds, they return from whence they came. They go back to the pit of hell, right? They are a result of the fall. They are not a part of creation. That's when cats showed up on the scene. <laughs> a little too charismatic. Let's calm down, four o'clock, right? I have no hope to offer my kids in these moments. But, but you know what else I have to talk to my kids about? A number of years ago when my mom passed away suddenly, my wife had to sit my son Dax down and say, Mima has died. And she comforts him and she grieves with him. But even in that moment, she's able to offer him hope. She's able to look him in the eyes and say, guess what, Dax? You will see her again because she is with Jesus in heaven. Why do we know that? You guys, we know that because of the hope of the resurrection. We know deep in our souls that this life is not all that there is. And the resurrection, it presents the truth in our hearts that our hearts long for. A life beyond sickness, a life beyond pain, a life beyond sadness, a life that is not cut short by car accidents and lung disease and tumors. We need to know that this life is not the end. And we know this because of the empty tomb. This is what we build our lives. This is what we build our future. This is what we build eternity around. I've reached this point where I love preaching funerals. I I really do. I I would rather preach a funeral than officiate a wedding, which sounds crazy because weddings are fun, right? There's a celebration and there's food and there's dancing and, and funerals are marked by grief. But you know why I love preaching funerals? Because it's at funerals people are most hungry for the truth of scripture. The, the fact that this life, how we live this life matters, but this life is not all there is. We, we're hungry for these moments. 
And so a few years ago, there was a, there was a young mom in her 20s who was connected to our church, and she passed away suddenly and tragically. And I went and I preached at her funeral. Her family asked, hey, would you come preach the gospel and offer the hope of resurrection and salvation to, to our church and so, to, to this group of people. So I did, and I went and I preached, and it was like an amazing moment. In fact, a, a gal came up to me this morning, and she was like, hey, by the way, I was at that funeral, and, and I was wounded by the church, and I didn't want anything to do with church, and it was after sitting through that funeral, hearing the gospel, that I decided to come join and participate with Rise, and that was three years ago, and she's been with our church ever since. But I got home, and I got a message and it was from a gal who had grown up in the church, but she had deconstructed and walked away, plenty of wounds and, and even maybe understandable reasons for it. But she, she, she wrote in her message, how dare you preach at a funeral the way that you did? How dare you talk about sickness and death and sin and eternity and Jesus and the gospel in the face of grieving mourning people. They don't want your agenda. You know what they need in that moment? They just need your comforting words. And she ridiculed me for preaching the gospel. And here's, here's why, okay? Because it's easy to get up and, and look at somebody when they're grieving and say, no, that person lives on in your heart. Because, why? Because it feels good right? We say, these, we say these things like, oh no, like, like anytime you see a butterfly, that is them coming and visiting you. Or every sunset, I, when I lost my mom, somebody looked at me and, and they were like, you, you're, you'll experience your mom in every sunset. That's where she is now. You know why we say these things? Because these fluffy words, they feel good. But let me tell you, they do no good. Because that is not the truth. Any of you who have lost a loved one, they are not a butterfly. They are not a sunset. They are not a star. If their hope was in Jesus Christ, guess what? They are with him now in this very moment. They are by his side. I teach my kids, when we pray to Jesus, we can tell, ask Jesus to say hi to Mima. Because he looked at the thief on the cross and said, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the hope of the resurrection. This is the great hope of the empty tomb. This is why we build our lives around it. Jesus declared death does not get the final say. And this is a hope that we need in our grief and our sorrow. And it strengthens our spine. And it gives us courage to press on, to know that life matters. But we also... We need hope for our own future resurrection. I don't know if you know this, but the scriptures teach that every person, every human being, one day will be resurrected. And Jesus is very clear about it, that we either are resurrected into life or we are resurrected into judgment. This is what he says in John 5, 28. He says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, I want to be clear. I want to bring some clarity from all of Scripture to this. Um, who has done evil? Everyone. Who has done good? Jesus. And so what he's saying is, if you find your hope in Jesus, in the cross, in his life, 
then your, your resurrection is into life. But if you try to find your hope in your own works, your resurrection is into judgment. This resurrection into judgment, it's an experience for those who do not trust in Jesus for their salvation. We are bodily raised to live the rest of eternity in the context of, of what the Bible calls spiritual death. It's a distance, a separation from goodness and pleasure and community and God and love and grace. And if we ignore the reality that Jesus rose from the dead and we fail to embrace the promise that God has offered, the hope that he's offered, then we remain in our trajectory that the original sin set us on, separation and death. That, that's eternity. But if you trust in what Jesus has done, and you've shaped your whole life around it, he is your Lord and your Savior, then that courtroom of God's judgment, it changes. This is the incredible promise of the gospel, is that the gospel changes heaven's courtroom from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. You stand before him. He says, what have you done to deserve eternal life? And you say, I've done nothing, but what he's done has made the way. And God says, welcome to the family. That's the beauty of the gospel. This resurrection unto life is a bodily life, a physical life. It's not just a spiritual life. It's a physical resurrection into the presence of God and his new restored creation, a life of love and grace and peace and delight and community and pleasures forevermore. This is why Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. This is the great hope of the Bible. This amazing preacher and theologian, D.L. Moody, years and years ago, he said this phrase that many other uh, pastors and leaders and theologians have just taken on as, on this, as this mantra. And he said, one day you will read in the paper that I am dead. Do not believe it for a second. For in that moment, I will be more alive than I have ever been. This is the hope of scripture. That, that, that every one of us, we will be resurrected And if we are in Jesus, we are resurrected into eternal life with him. It brings us hope, the resurrection. It brings us hope in the face of death. But not just in death, the resurrection, it brings us, it brings deeper meaning to this life that we live here and now. First, the resurrection, it brings deeper meaning to the purpose of life. Sometimes we get lost in the purpose. Like, it just all feels meaningless. I'm born, I grow up. I pay taxes, I get old, I die, right? When I was a teenager, um, there was this commercial. I actually looked it up, and uh, I I wanted to show it, but it's like, once I explain, you're like, no, you can't show that on Easter. But anyway, so it's this, it's a commercial, and and there's there's a pregnant mom in labor, and she's pushing and pushing and pushing. All of a sudden, this baby launches out of her womb, shoots through the window, and is launching, flying through the air, and it's just start, he just starts growing up, becomes a teenager, starts yelling, right? Becomes a grown man, all of a sudden becomes an old man, starts losing his hair and his teeth, and then lands right into this casket in the gravesite. And it just says, life's short, play hard, Xbox, right? <laughs> I'm like, that's brilliant. I'm talking about it 15 years later, okay? That's brilliant, right? 
And it, but here's the thing. If this life is all there is, then like, why wouldn't you waste it away playing video games? You know what I'm saying? Like plug into the metaverse, you know, get, get a better life, like, like lie and cheat and steal and retire and go buy a boat. You know what I'm saying? Like just do all, one of those is not like the other. You boat people feel like I'm a little judgy, but I kind of lump them all, to, all together. Like there's no point. So just go buy your boat and dump your money in it. Right. But if the resurrection is true, then all of this life and all we do, it has greater eternal purpose and significance. And that's what it is. This is how I lo- why I love how N.T. Wright explains this in his book called Surprised by Hope, which, which talks about the implications of the resurrection. And he says, what you do in the present by painting or preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, it will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, and that until the day when we leave it behind altogether, they are part of what we would call building for God's kingdom. It, the resurrection declares that your life and what you do now matters. You are helping to participate in building God's kingdom. It gives weight and it gives meaning and it gives significance to the way we live our lives now. But it also gives deeper meaning to the pain of life. It offers hope and solutions in pain. We are in a crisis of hope right now. Like we have just seen it in a massive way. But, but not just like, you know, theoretically. As they've, they've done studies and made observations, like there is a massive uptick in suicide, depression, addiction, and people feeling hopeless. Many of you guys know the stories. Some of you guys are experiencing this yourself. I read an article this week in The Atlantic, completely secular um, article, no Christian bend to it. And, and, but it's, it, it did a study from 2009 to 2021, up to last year, and they were studying teenagers. And what they said was, said the United States is experiencing an extreme teenage mental health crisis. From 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% to 44%, according to a new CDC study. This is the highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. So in this short period of time, we've gone from one in four to nearly one in two teenagers that experience deep sadness and hopelessness. It says almost every measure of mental health is getting worse for every teenage demographic, and it's happening all across the country. Since 2009, sadness and hopelessness, hopelessness have increased for every race, for every grade, for every sexuality, for every gender, and for teens in all 50 states. And then they go on to give four reasons. And I think these reasons are incredibly insightful for us. Here's the first one. Um, They said social media, not specifically social media in itself, but what social media is causing. It's causing deep comparison. And so you have these young teenagers who constantly are comparing their lifestyle, their friendships, and their physical appearance to everybody around them. Like, that does something to your soul. 
Am I right? Like, like you can like many things about yourself and how you look, but when you start comparing yourself to others, you feel this level of dissatisfaction. Or even your life, like the events of your life. Have you ever like been on vacation and you're like, oh, I'm on vacation, I'll check social media, see what my friends are up to. And you look back and they're all, all hanging out and you're like, you have like this FOMO, right? You're like, why didn't I get invited? Well, because you're on vacation, you know? You're sipping Mai Tais in Maui and you're sad that you didn't get included on, on what you're, because compar- in comparison, it rots the soul. Here's the second one, social disconnection. Driven, yes, by social media, but also by the last two years we've experienced a pandemic isolation. So aloneness, which is a state of being, and loneliness, which is an emotional experience, they're pushing us towards sadness when we need community to protect us against the pressure of a stressful world. Here's the third reason. Um, They said pressure, specifically modern pressure to succeed and achieve. They're experiencing more pressure from their parents and their peers than ever before. Like when I was a kid, I did sports. And you know why I did sports? Uh, For fun, right? Now, a kid goes and tries out for t-ball, hits a dinger out, you know, way out in the field. And his dad's like, yep, that kid's going D1. Like he's going to get a scholarship. And so I'm going to put him into baseball five, six days a week, all evenings, practice, practice. We're going to be a travel team. And there's this pressure, the pressure on kids to go to college, to go get a degree, to get $100,000 in debt and then go work at Starbucks. Like the pressure that is extreme across the board, we're seeing it heightened. And fourth, Because of 24-7 access to news about the world falling apart, we're seeing anxiety and fear being driven by the world news, right? Now, let me just say a couple things. First of all, this is not just teenagers, am I right? Like, so many of us, like, if I look at this list, I'm like, this is true of me. These are things that are poison to my soul, and I experience them maybe in ways I didn't experience 10, 15 years ago. It's an epidemic of sorrow and sadness because of what is happening around us. Now, here's my question. What do we need in the face of this? What we need is the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, I want to show you in Scripture how the New Testament authors spoke to each and every one of these things and how they were impacted by a resurrected Christ. First, comparison. Paul writes in Romans 6, 4, he says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. There's a new life being offered you. And, and we, from one degree of glory to the other, we are becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And that is good news. So we need to stop comparing ourselves to one another because we are being shaped in the image of Jesus. And each and every one of us, we will be resurrected into an eternal body. And that is good news. But you ever had, when somebody gets sick, you said the phrase or heard the phrase like, oh, they're just a shadow of themselves. You know, you know what I'm talking about? They just, their personality isn't quite what it is. Their energy isn't quite, they're still them, but they're just a shadow of themselves. I need you to know this. You are just a shadow of your future resurrected self. There are things that you love about you. And guess what? God made you that way, and you will be that way through all eternity. There are things you hate about yourself. 
And guess what? Those are going to be redeemed and restored and renewed. But you are going to be you, the best, the Jesus version, the Jesus image version of yourself through all eternity. And that is good and beautiful news. Second, disconnection. What does the resurrection have to say about that? Well, you know what John's told his disciples? He said, in my father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He's saying, I'm building a place. I'm preparing a place for you in my father's house. And there is plenty of room for you. He says, and if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We feel disconnected and we feel alone, not in God's eternal family. Because of the resurrection, we will be with Jesus. We will be with God's family if our faith and our hope is in him for all eternity. And this is beautiful. You feel pressure? Romans 8, 11 says, the spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead lives in you. The same spirit that raised Christ out of the grave, if you have put your faith in Jesus, lives in you. Stop feeling so much pressure. He has given you all you need. His power is made perfect in your weakness. As I'm getting ready to preach this week, I came across this tweet because like Easter Sunday is such a big Sunday. It's like, for, for pastors, it's like Super Bowl Sunday, you know what I'm saying? Like, bring it, you know, <laughs> right? And, and I just read this tweet, it's just, it was just like, it was just soothing to my soul. It says, pastors, there is no pressure to crush your sermon on Sunday, absolutely zero. Why? Because Jesus got up out of the grave and is still reigning as king. Let that be enough for you and for your church. This is what we need in life. We don't need the pressure to be perfect because Jesus was perfect. We don't need the pressure to be significant because Jesus was significant. We don't need the pressure to finish because Jesus finished. Would we put our hope in him, church? And, it, and, and this is how the resurrection redeems these things. And even fear. It says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Why is that possible? Because Jesus has resurrected. Because Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on our behalf. And he sent the Holy Spirit to empower us. And he says, you do not have a spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of self-discipline. See, the resurrection means that your worst moment is never your last moment. Because this is the hope of the resurrection. We need it in death, and we need it in life. But also, we need to understand that the resurrection, it brings validity to all the teachings of Jesus. See, it's the central claim of the scriptures that Jesus, that gives him authority and influence, that he rose from the grave. Christianity is the only faith it's the only faith that can be disproven. You know why? You know how you disprove the faith of Christianity? You find the bones of Jesus. And any other religion, it's, it's philosophical. It's, hey, I had a vision. I'm a prophet and I had a vision. And here's how you go live a good life. You know what Christianity is? Jesus showing up saying, I'm God. And watch, I'm about to prove it. I'm going to be killed and three days later, I'm going to rise again. See, you go to, to the founder of every other major belief system in the world, and you can go visit their tomb. You can go to the graveside of Abraham in Palestine, and you know what you'll find? You'll find bones. 
Thousands of people every year go and visit the tomb of Buddha in India. And you know what they find? They find an occupied tomb. Thousands of people go to the burial site of Muhammad and Medina. And what do they find? They find a rotting corpse. See, Christianity is vulnerable. Because if a person were to find the bones of Jesus, it would be proof that Christianity was wrong. And we are fools to build our lives around it. But it's not. This is why Paul wrote that Jesus, when he rose again, he appeared to over 500 people. He said, some of which are still alive today when he was writing. What is he saying? He's like, test it. Go ask them. They saw him. Put your faith in Jesus. See, the teachings of Jesus, they have authority because he has resurrection on his resume. That's what gives him authority. Did you rise from the dead? Okay, good. You didn't. He did. Follow him. Submit to him. Give your life for him. See, this is why the disciples, like, like when you read the scriptures, like the early disciples, they were a bunch of riffraff. They were, they were fools, like arguing over who got to the tomb first. You know what I'm saying? Like, like and Jesus starts getting, they're, they're going to crucify Jesus, and they all scatter, right? Peter acts all tough when Jesus is there. He's like, I'll cut his ear off, right? You know, I'll fight for you. And Jesus is like, come on, bro. Like, now I got to heal this guy right before I'm crucified, right? And then a little girl in front of a fire is like, you were with him. And Peter's like, no, no, I wasn't. I don't even know him, right? This is, this is the founding of our faith. <laughs> but what happened to transform their lives? They saw a resurrected Jesus. And ultimately, these are men who ended up, all of them, being martyred for their faith. Bartholomew, he was flayed to death with a whip in Armenia. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. Luke was hanged in Greece. Mark was dragged to death by a horse in Egypt. Matthew was killed by the sword in Ethiopia. Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear in India. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded in Jerusalem. Andrew and Philip, they were crucified in Greece. Peter, they tried to crucify, and he was like, no, I'm not worthy of it. So they crucified him upside down. The only one who was not martyred was John. They tried to martyr him. They tried to boil him alive in oil, and it didn't kill him. And so then he went off to the island. He was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation, and how fast he was, right? <laughs> this, is the, this is the disciples, and not a single one of them recanted and changed their story. Why? Because they saw with their own eyes the resurrected king. See, the resurrection it gives validity to the teachings of Jesus. Because if you have resurrection on your resume, whatever you say goes. Mark Sayers makes this observation about his life, the life of Jesus. It's a glimpse into eternity. It says Jesus' life on earth, it points us towards the future. His actions act as clues, showing us how the story of creation will continue into the future. And so Jesus' healing of the disabled person points towards a time when humans will be healed physically and mentally. Jesus' deliverance of those possessed by evil demons, it points to a future when evil will be expelled from our world. Even as feeding of those without food, it's a glimpse of a future world where there, there will be no hunger or poverty or starvation. And above all, Jesus' resurrection speaks of a time when death and suffering will be defeated and the world will be resurrected. 
This is the hope of the resurrection. It gives validity. And lastly, the resurrection, it brings hope to the most desolate of situations. Man, I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know the hardship and the pain that you brought in this room this evening. I mean, to be honest, like some of you guys probably even had really hard days. Moments with family, anxiety over walking through these doors. I don't know what it is, but here's what I know is Jesus knows what it is. And the resurrection, yes, it's a story about Jesus. Yes, it's a story about God. Yes, it's a story about, about God reconciling the world to him. But the resurrection, it also is a story that has deep meaning for you. And the sorrow and the grief and the sickness and the pain and the sin that you are experiencing. It says, Paul says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, the resurrection, it gives you hope. No, water, no matter what your situation is. Temptations and identities that once ruled and ruined us, they may still be there, but they no longer control our lives because of the resurrection. See, lies we once told ourselves, they dissipate in the light of the truth of the resurrection. Relationships we once thought dead and gone can blossom again because of the resurrection. Sickness can be overcome. Guilt can be banished. Shame can be buried and left like graves closed. Like when I read that story, I always wonder why they gave so much attention to those graves closed. You know why? Because those graves closed that Jesus left behind, it's a symbol of your sin that he was wrapped in and he put to the grave, and guess what? It's still there. That's what Jesus did with our shame. That's what Jesus did with our guilt. He became it so he could put it to death on the cross and then be buried in the grave and left there today. That's, what, that's the good news of the gospel. Man, me and my kids and my wife, we were walking through this small town up in Washington. We saw this little bookstore. And uh, my kids are like, oh, like, let's go in the bookstore. And so we turn and we, we walk in the bookstore and we're walking around. And I just, there's this big, giant, hardbound book that I'd never seen before. It just drew my eye. I had heard of the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, and it just said Little Pilgrim's Progress. It's got this, like, little bunny on it. I'm like, well, this will be cute, right? You, you ever do that? Like, oh, this will be a cute story to read my kids. And so, so we sit every night for the last few weeks, and we, and we read three, four chapters a night together and just sit on the couch and read. But we came to this part that absolutely rocked me. And I opened to this picture, and it's just this bunny standing before this wooden cross. And, and the story in Little Pilgrim's Progress is of this little bunny named Christian who is on a journey to the king city. But he doesn't think he can make it because he has these burdens strapped to his back. Things that weigh him down. Things that make it, him feel tired and exhausted. And over and over and over, as he keeps trying to press forward, he's like, I just can't go any further with these burdens. And he comes to this cross, and this is what it says. It says, presently he came to a place where there was a little hill by the side of the road, and upon the hill he saw the very thing for which he was longing. There stood the cross, 
And the moment little Christian began to climb the path that led to it, he felt that the bands that fastened his burden were breaking. Then it fell from his shoulders and it rolled to the bottom of the hill. And when he turned to see what had become of it, he found that it was quite gone. I must be dreaming, he thought. But although he stood still for a few minutes, rubbing his eyes, the burden, it did not come back. The birds went on singing, and the sun shone brightly upon the cross, and he knew that he must be awake, and that the king had really taken the weight from his shoulders forever. You guys, this is what Jesus did on that cross. This is the hope that we have in the resurrection because we have these burdens. They weigh us down. We have this shame and this guilt that starts to, it feels like our identity, doesn't it? And it tells us in scripture that Jesus became. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And this is the beauty of the cross and the resurrection. That in the cross, Jesus put, he paid the price of your sin and your shame. But in the resurrection, he offers us newness of life. See, the resurrection, it ushers in the reign of the king. This is why we celebrate. This is why we clap. This is why we cheer. This is why we, we just feel something so different on an Easter Sunday. Because the resur- if the resurrection is true, and it is, it was the beginning of something new, a new creation. A new chapter opened up in the universe. Cosmic history, yes, but also a new chapter in Jesus. After his resurrection... He spent several weeks teaching his disciples and preparing them for his departure. He returned to the glory he once had, but in a different way. More than what he once had. See, as the human ruler of God's universe, he now has a new role. And he gathers them together, his disciples together, to explain that he's now the king. Because of his sacrifice and his resurrection, he now has authority over all the earth. Tells us in Matthew 28, verse 18, this is the end of the resurrection account. And he gathers the disciples on this hill. He explains the authority that he has. Says that they gathered and they worshiped him, but some still doubted. And he explains to them, he says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He says, because I'm the king, teach people to follow me. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Because of what I've gone through, they can participate in my death and my resurrection teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, here's what we need to understand is a crucified king summons reverence, but a resurrected king commands allegiance. 
and there's a different authority because Jesus is that resurrected king. Amen? And so it demands something of our lives. It's not something we just, you know, once or twice a year we show up and, you know, we listen to the talk and we listen to the songs and we grab the coffee and we go on our way. No, follow, discipleship to Jesus is all of life. It's a complete surrender. It's saying, Jesus, I want to be with you. Jesus, I want to be like you. Jesus, I want to do what you did. That's what discipleship is. And Jesus, he's not some poor peasant anymore. He is a glorified king on his throne ruling and reigning and he's worthy of our worship and he's worthy of our sacrifice and he is worthy of our time because he is ruling the universe. And here's what the call is. He's inviting you to trust and follow him with all of your life. The Christian life, it's a life surrendered to Jesus as a gift. It's not just a belief system. It's a way of living. It's a way of living in the footsteps of Jesus. And so as we close in worship, here's what we're going to do. And we're going to sing a song called The Crown of Heaven. And we're going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate. And it's going to be beautiful. And, and every person in this room has something they need to do in response. Some of you, you need to stand and maybe lift your hands in worship for the first time honoring your king. Some of you maybe just need to sit back down and reflect on the, tr on the power of the gospel, on the truth of resurrection. And that's a beautiful way of worshiping. But for many of you, I, I want to offer something. We're going to have some people from our prayer team come up front. And I want to invite you to come forward for one of three reasons. One, some of you guys have some burdens in your life, some things you are tired of carrying. And you need to bring them to the cross. You need to bring them to Christ. And one of the ways we do that is by bringing them to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I just, if there is something heavy on your heart, I, I just want to encourage you and invite you to come forward and pray with someone. Second, there's some of you who need to make Jesus, he's, he's your Savior, but he has not been your Lord. And tonight is the night to make a, a new declaration of that. You say, man, I, I believe all this, but I've not been living it. And as an act of surrender and obedience to Jesus, I want you to invite you to come forward and pray with someone and share that and let them pray over you. And we would celebrate with you. But there's also some of you who have never put your faith in Jesus, never submitted to his lordship in your life. And tonight is the night to do it. What a beautiful moment to celebrate that. And, and we want to pray with you. And so I want to invite you to come forward. And so there, we're going to be standing and singing. There's going to be people coming forward. And we're going to be praying over each other. And it's going to be a beautiful moment. And there's going to be something inside of you that is going to feel hesitant to walk forward. Man, what if people see me? What do they think? What do they do? Can, can I just expel that right now? When you feel that hesitation, can you just picture Jesus walking up the hill of Calvary, carrying your cross on your behalf? Jesus paved a way. And so it's just you and Jesus in this moment. So church, would you guys stand with me as we get ready to sing? Jesus, you are risen. You are the resurrected king.
And Lord, you are resurrecting us. Lord, will we walk away from today understanding in a new way the depth of the why of the resurrection, the hope that it gives us in death, the meaning and significance and purpose it gives us in life, what it brings to the most desolate of situations. And Lord, I just pray for each and every one of us. Would we walk away feeling more, experiencing more of your love and your power and your grace and your goodness because you, you are a king who lives and rules and reigns and you are worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.